0: welcome to the magnify podcast magnify is a platform at the intersection of faith feminism and fashion during these episodes we have conversations with dynamic individuals that we hope will leave you intrigued inspired and informed i'm your host and magnify's founder ruth Yumika Afalabi. from personal experience I know how sensitive and challenging, but yet important, speaking about race in public can be. Regardless of what race we are, we all have different experiences with race, which have shaped the lens through which we see the world. I think particularly in the context of faith, we see in today's world, where faith and politics are so intertwined, being able to speak up about racial injustices is so important. And that's why I was so honored to speak to Ben Lindsay. Ben is an author, speaker, pastor, and activist. In this conversation we spoke about a number of things from his experience almost being murdered in 1993 to being one of the only black people in his church at the time and seeing the love and support from his church members which taught him the value of reconciliation. We also spoke about his book on race and faith and crucially why he thinks it's important for us all to become empathetic and conscious of becoming anti-racist. So let's listen to this conversation. So I always like to start with a few quickfire questions for us to get to know <laughs> you. Um, so firstly, what's a surprising, weird or unusual fact about you?
1: I used to run a record label. Oh. Um, yeah, I used to run a, a Guan label back in 2004. Um, and one of the people who we signed was a guy called Big Nasty. Mm. Um, And, uh, yeah, he's obviously gone on to do other things.
0: Amazing. Um, And I always love this because I love the idea of conversation. If you could have dinner with four inspiring guests from anywhere, Mm. um, who would they be?
1: Yeah, brilliant question. So I would say the first person would be St. Augustine, Mm. uh, first century black theologian who, if you type into Google, um, you won 't see him as being black, even though he um he basically studied in in Egypt and was one of the pioneers of Christianity in the second third century and um i'd love to just i 'd love to have dinner with him 'd be just like, okay, you know just what would it have been like to have been a a black man in Africa? pioneering Christianity and just to be around that where that would have just been normal it would have just been like that's not even a thing you know this is what we're around so St Augustine would be one Um, I think Martin Luther King would be another person I just think just being having a conversation about how do you promote peaceful resistance in in the face of such adversity and violence um, would have been quite impressive and would have been amazing just to kind of see. Um, so you would have been great. Uh, the other person would have been Maya Angelou, I think. Just, um, yeah, just an incredible poet, writer, inspiration. So, you know, I can that be quite a good dinner uh, conversation. And then I suppose the fourth person would be, I'm not sure I have all these people around the same table. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, I think the fourth person would be Jay Z. Oh yeah, I I I'm a bit of a hip hop 90s hip hop fan, and I think there'd be a load of kind of geeky questions I'd ask him about, you know, particular albums and what was his frame of kind of just thinking around that time. But more than more than any of that, I just feel there's a there's like a a business uh, kind of mind what he has. Which I'd love to kind of just be able to unpick a little bit, kind of like you know you're, you're a black billionaire, and I'll be interested in just how you got there or, or well you can you can kind of see how he got there, but just some of the decisions, and you know it's good to be around successful people. so yeah those those would be like my four very different <laughs> thoughts. Uh, kind of inspiring people, at least from
0: where I'm sitting anyway. Amazing, um, and lastly, what's a favourite childhood memory
1: you have? Oh my goodness, I had a cool childhood, you know. I was, I was like, I'm an only child. Oh, so you okay. meant that um, some people would argue that I was, I was really spoiled. Um, I'd say that I was just well loved, you know. Just, <laughs> um, but I don't favourite childhood memory. I think oh, I'll tell you one. I'll tell you definitely one which will always stand out. I I saw Michael Jackson at. Uh, Wembley Stadium oh wow 1988 80 plus thousand people that will be and it was in and I can remember it like it was yesterday like watching him walk it was Michael Jackson in his prime you know everyone loved him <laughs> before any allegations came out you know it was like oh this is this is when you want to see Michael Jackson so uh, and I went with my family I went with my I my mum was there my my uncles, uh, it was incredible. So yeah, that would definitely be one of the standout memories. I think I that think
0: would I be hard think. to top, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, I think, yeah, I can't, yeah,
1: yeah, I reckon it's pretty, yeah, it's up there, brilliant.
0: So obviously you're so passionate about talking about race and I really want to get into that. Um, so growing up, how aware of race were you um, and what was your experience growing up as a black man? Because I know we spoke before we started the interview that um, race in a weird way, has really shaped a lot of my thinking. But I'd love to hear more about your experience. Yeah. Um,
1: So, I I suppose growing up, you're aware of race. So, you know, you're growing up in a a black family. And my family were the type of family who didn't really hide much from me. So, if... (laughs) there was something going on on the television around apartheid. You know, I was allowed to watch it and my mum would explain what was going on. Um If my uncles had had experiences with the police, why they wouldn't sit me down as a five or six year old and go into explicit detail. You know, I remember overhearing conversations about, oh, you know, I was stopped by the police, I, was, I wasn't was doing anything. So you began to kind of pick up some things as a, as a kid. We just like, oh, this is interesting. Certain sectors of society or certain institutions might have a slightly different perspective mm. on you because of the colour of your skin. But we also were just very real about what was going on at that time. And I suppose it was um, as we got into the early 90s that racism in the area where I lived at the time, South East London, was really, really becoming explicit. Um,
0: How did that kind of play itself
1: out? Yeah, it played itself out in different ways. I speak a little bit about it in my book, but there was racist graffiti on my house. Wow. Uh, where you'd, have, you'd be walking up the road and, and people were shouting out the N-word. Uh you know, dog poo left through your letterbox. You know, just the normal everyday things. But <laughs> 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 like, fortunately, things have changed. But yeah, so that was happening, and then you started seeing people or hearing about people being attacked. Um, so probably one of the first people we heard um, who was who was attacked and killed, actually. Um, in my age range, would have been a guy called Roland Adams who was killed in Thamesmead in Southeast London. Um, before that, there was the New Cross fire in, in the early 80s, which has always been speculated that that was like an arson attack, a racist arson attack. But I was a bit young to really understand what was going on. By the time we hit the 90s and I was in secondary school, we just kept on hearing like, about these racist attacks and then it really got amplified when Stephen Lawrence was murdered.
0: Did that make you change your behaviour at all? Or kind of, yeah, I guess when we're young, we're supposed to be in the ideal world, carefree. Did that make you a lot more conscious of just how you went about your life?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, what I would say before Stephen, so Stephen was murdered April 1993, and January 1993, I almost died in a racist attack. Wow. So So um, not too far from where Stephen was murdered. So uh, that was the moment where everything changed for me. That was the mo- there's um, I think it's William Blake who who has, uh, written poetry about the um, age of innocence and age of experience. And I definitely remember getting to the point where I was like, oh, okay, now this I'm now walking into the age of experience because prior to that point, I was pretty naive to stuff. Yeah, you know, I might have heard some of the stuff was going on, but I've never been involved in racism to that degree. So then, when Stephen was murdered, I, it was kind of like, okay, well, yeah, this stuff happens because it almost—I almost died from a er- racist attack. And did it change my perspective? Definitely. I, I remember I was going out with a, a, a white girl at the time. I say like going out. I was like fourteen. So I <laughs> clarify, classify it as a as a full-on, you know serious relationship. But I remember just thinking this can't I can't really continue with this. Which I don't think was more to I don't know if that was race, but more just probably a bit like I've just been beaten up and almost died and I'm a little bit embarrassed and I don't want to talk about this and she was a really nice girl from what I remember and I don't know how to really manage my emotions. Mm. What how I came out of that was that I just saw the real love and support from the church I was going to at the time in Was that quite a mixed church or no, it wasn't mixed. Well, we would only play family in the church. Wow. <laughs> so, um, uh, we brought the mix. About exactly what it was, but no. Um, I think what they they were just incredible in terms of their love. My mum recently showed me some letters, which I don't think I'd ever seen before, wow. from from the congregation who were really appalled and uh, upset about what happened, and uh, yeah, and my mum to a credit, and my my grandparents, and you know. Other family members, you know, like my dad, they never, ever kind of were anti-white people, even in the face of their, their their son almost being being killed. And that helped me. That kind of helped me. That that kind of, I suppose, forgiveness and uh, reconciliation quickly got me into thinking that it wasn't an isolated incident. Not all white people are racist. Let's have, but I still have to work out how I navigate this world where, because of my skin colour, I'm discriminated against or people actually want to kill me. So, yeah, full scene. That was a lot to kind of... Wrestle with. Yeah, wrestle with, definitely. Yeah, wow. really
0: Amazing. Um, So I kind of really want to get into faith and race. And I know for me, I was really impacted at Christmas. I was in Ghana um, and went to one of the slave castles. And I remember um, them showing us this dungeon where the slaves were kept. It was absolutely tiny. And um, they kept like 200 slaves there with no light. And they said above was where like slave owners had church, And I remember on the trip having, talking to friends who weren't of faith and they were saying like, this is precisely why they have no interest in Christianity because they just kind of see it as like an extension of colonialism and that whenever they used to go to church when they were younger and they tried to talk about this, they were always like shut down. So what would your response be to someone who feels, I guess that Christianity was outworking, even when we look at America and everything that's going on there? Um, a lot of people feel that Christianity isn't inclusive of all races. What would you say to someone who felt that was kind of been your experience?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think they're not wrong. <laughs> so, I think that's what you've got to be honest. You've got to have the honest conversations. I think the whitewashing of what Christianity is and isn't is clear to see at the start of this conversation we spoke about. St. Augustine as one example. So, you know, you, you type in his name and you type in other theologians of that time who were at the forefront of Christianity um, and you'll, re- you'll find very quickly that they all come up as white men. And that's just impossible because it will, a lot of these guys were based in Egypt, a lot of these guys were based in Ethiopia, um, Africa, and it was kind of like, okay... And, and in fact, you know, it's clear that they were they were all of darker skin, and you're like, well, how, how what, 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 how, what changed? How, how have we gone from there to there? So we've got to understand there has been a whitewashing of history. I think we've also got to acknowledge that the concept of white Jesus is just one which is is ridiculous when we really think about it. We were well aware that Jesus, while I don't think he had dreads, uh, and was. Uh, but he definitely was somebody who would have been a, a, a darker complexion than what we often see. Um, the blonde, blue-eyed Jesus is not something which you know anybody should really believe. So then you start looking at the transatlantic slave trade and you start looking at... When you go into the detail of it and you realise that the church was uh, not just the saviour, you know, we've got the Wilberforce stories and we've got the kind of, the Christians who have come in to be part of the solution to to end in slavery. Actually, some of these guys, some of these institutions, historically, were complicit in the transatlantic slave trade. So you, we have to, first of all, acknowledge that when we talk about Christianity, there's been whitewashing. When we talk about the transatlantic slave trade, um... Actually, Christianity has played a major part in the reason why that happened. We have to acknowledge all this stuff. But we've also got to realise that Christianity isn't and should never be seen as a white man's religion. When you look at uh, the stories in the Old Testament and you do your history and you do your research, much of those stories, uh, in fact, the whole Bible has come out of an African context when you start looking at the maps, when you start doing the history, um, most of the st- people in the Bible would have been of a darker complexion. Um, we've got to understand all this type of stuff. But the problem is, we don't ever go that deep with our reading and we don't want to go that deep with our theology. And therefore, it's very easy for us to say, no, no, that's no, a white man's religion. We're not going there. And then, you know, a lot of my conversations tend to be in, in barbershops as well. Mm. So you know, classically in a barbershop, you you have conversations about politics. You have conversations about sport. You have conversations about religion. And you know, matter of times I, I I would be like, yeah, you know, yeah, you know, I'm a Christian and I'm a I'm a I'm a pastor at a church. Ah, like, oh, you know, new Babylon and all this type of stuff. <laughs> it's like I'm like, why? Oh, and it's like, you know, how can you how can you subscribe to this faith? Um, knowing what, what they've done with the transatlantic slave trade. I'm like, ah, oh, cool. That's a really fair point. But you realise, and this is where you've got to know your history and know your research, you realise before the transatlantic slave trade, there was the trans-Saharan slave trade. Wow. Which was pushed by Islam. The reason why Europeans got the idea that slavery was a good one is because they'd seen it modelled in, in the Sahara. So, and I'm like, okay, cool. The, so, all I'm saying is, if you're not wanting to explore Christianity because of the transatlantic slave trade, then that also means that you need to be very, very critical of, of other faiths. Mm. And the truth of the matter is, when I, when, I wrote, when I wrote my book, I had to ask myself the question would I still be a Christian at the end of it? <laughs> and I'm happy to say I am, but I also realized that it's not God. Yeah. The Bible is really clear he shows, God shows no partiality. God shows no favoritism. Um, Revelation 5 and 7, every tribe, every tongue will worship Jesus. You know, there's multiple uh, verses in the Bible which really talks about this. The the problem isn't God, the problem is the heart of men and women. Mm -hmm. The problem is the heart of humankind, which is corrupt, which is exploitative, which is, Uh, selfish and money hungry uh, and this is why we're in this mess and you you can look through history to see how that actually plays out so I always like to to say to people listen, I'm not one here to say that Christianity is is flawless or hasn't got problems but let's go a little bit deeper in understanding what Christianity is and it isn't and it definitely can never be seen as a white man's religion once you actually do your, your reading around it
0: amazing as people who have a faith um getting into kind of debates about race isn't always helpful because we're all one race under god and then other people who you know experience racism in very severe ways think that that is kind of trying to put it push it under the carpet um so where do you think is the line um and yeah what has been your experience of race yeah. and faith
1: <clears throat> yeah i think it's um i don't think you can separate things up so I think people like to uh, put, put situations and scenarios and experiences in boxes. So it's kind of like, oh yeah, we can have the race conversation over here, but we shouldn't have the faith conversation. Or well, we can have the gender conversation, but that shouldn't connect in with race. Or we should have the, the gender conversation, but that shouldn't connect in with faith. There's a term called intersectionality, which basically means that there is a, a combination and uh a mix of multiple things uh, i'm a black man um and i am also a christian uh, and i'm also a father and i'm a husband and all those different parts of my identity crossover um, and you can't separate them out. And I think sometimes we like to just box things as, and make things as simple as possible. And it's not, it's complicated. Life is complicated. But when you start talking about race relations, it's complicated. I think my experience would be is that you kind of can fall into two camps when you're talking about faith and race. You can be in the colour blindness camp and... Uh, Uh, There's no male, there's no female, there's no Jew, there's no Gentile. We're all one under Christ. And it's kind of like, I don't see colour. And I think people who say that, uh, most people come from a good place. Um, They're like, you know, I don't see colour. I see you as my brother or sister in Christ. And therefore, you know, we're all equal. Uh, And I'm like, okay, cool. But the problem with that statement is you don't see (laughs) colour. I I, I see, I see color, and (laughs) God use color because otherwise He would have made us all the same. (laughs) And and therefore, because of going back to what I said about the intersectionality, actually, you know, me being a black person is a massive part of my identity. Mm. Um, So I have a, I have a problem. So the color blindness perspective I, I struggle with, but then at the same time, at the other end of the spectrum is what I would call color consciousness. I'm black. That is all that matters, and everything else is secondary. And I'm like, uh, well, I don't sit there either, mm. because yeah, we are actually. When you talk about Christianity, we are all under the blood of Christ, and He died for all. And it is actually the blood of Christ which unites us together, and in and our brothers and sisters. I mean, you know what church is like. There's multiple people. Who you would not even think about connecting with, but you are connected by by Jesus Christ, and that's what makes Christianity so interesting. So, I don't want to be at the color blindness end of the spectrum because I don't think that's helpful. You're not you're not acknowledging or prepared to celebrate part of my identity, but I'm also not at the color the, the color consciousness end of the spectrum where I'm putting my blackness before anything else. Mm. I think you've got. Personally, for me, I have to wrestle with this. It's something I have to wrestle with a, a lot. And I have to somehow combine it to say, yeah, I'm a black man who's a Christian. Respect my identity, but ultimately know that I'm a, I'm,
0: a, I'm a son of the Most High as well. So Ben, when you have conversations about race, what's your aim? What are you trying to achieve? I just want to be able to have a
1: conversation where you're not feeling, white people are not feeling guilty. I'm not looking for white guilt. Um, I'm not even trying to blame anybody for anything. I'm just trying to show an experience of what it's like to be a black person in this country in the context of race and faith. And I've realised it's actually really tricky. that like it's really difficult for people to just have that conversation. I'll tell you why it's a problem. Because in this country, we're not actually used used to multiple... Black narratives.
0: Mm.
1: So you think of any profession in this country, um, and I guarantee it's been depicted in, in television. You can think of white doctors, you can think of white firemen, you can think of white police officers, you can think of white lawyers, you can think of white anything. And it's completely accepted, and that's not drama. But when you start thinking about black people in those contexts, it becomes a little bit more difficult. My point is this. The reason why we, we struggle to have multiple black narratives and also contradicting narratives, contradicting black narratives, is because we haven't had the, the girth of representation which we, we've we seen with white people. And that is a massive Problem. That's why when I talk, sometimes or other people try and you know are uh, bends like this or this person's like that. We tend to fall into two categories. I'm either seen as oh you know uh, the Carlton from Fresh Prince. Oh, he's the acceptable black guy for 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 you know the white population. Yeah, we can get with him or Malcolm X. Oh no, he's like the extreme <laughs> radical. Uh, black person all struggle. We 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 struggle, and I'm like oh, I'm kind of neither. But your reference points are only those two guys. Even though we know in between those, between the Coles and the Malcolm X's, there's multiple different narratives, and I think that is part of the reason why it's so polarizing. Um, and I think we also just got to be aware. And it's interesting at the moment, isn't it, with the whole COVID nineteen stuff which is happening it's really interesting that race still comes up as part of the issue in this. Yeah. you start seeing the disproportionality of of, of how this is impacting uh, ethnic minorities. I think it's really interesting to see who are the frontline workers, who are the people who are serving our communities really well, the NHS, the transport workers. They tend to be people of colour. And yet these are the people who are dying as well. and And it's like, Do you know what? We should have a conversation about why this is. But again, the moment you start saying it, you know, Ben, you would say that, or you know, chip on your shoulder. It's like, no, no, no. Why is it that a lot of the poorer communities are really struggling, and they tend to be of people of colour, and these are the people who are serving us? Yet they don't always get the respect. Hmm. They don't always get the acknowledgement. You know, it's fascinating. I'm, I'm for the NHS all day long but six months ago I'm pretty sure the conversation was you know will the NHS be privatised and be sold off to America
0: yeah um
1: oh you know we we love everybody yeah but again a few months ago the Windrush situation was basically sending people home who were actually some of the nurses and the bus drivers who were serving us for for generations Mm -hmm. so you see how complicated this, this situation is around race and anything and um and I think it's difficult. I, I think it's very tricky for this country to have a, a balanced conversation about about racism.
0: Is there a way that if you're someone that has been affected by race, that you can also be constructive in the way that you open up discussions about race?
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's a you've got to work out whether you really are prepared to have these conversations. So if you've been impacted by racism, I, I wouldn't rush into that because <laughs> I think that has the potential to cause you a lot of trauma so mm-hmm. uh, you know I'm 42 years old um, my book came out when I was 41 and my big racist experience happened when I was 14 and for years I couldn't quite articulate what I was seeing racism, it, it's interesting, it took me, you know, 20 plus years to finally get after lots of reading, lots of counsel, uh, lots of therapy, therapy um, for me to suddenly feel confident enough to have a conversation about race. Um, so, well, first of all, I would say, let's not don't rush that conversation, because what you will find is that you'll get, there'll be triggers, mm. And you've got to find yourself in a place where if someone disagrees with your perspective, you're not going to explode. Yeah. And they may just be like, you know what, that's just not my experience. That's white and black people. So I've had black people who've read my book and been like, do you know, what? Ben, been really, really proud of you that you've done this, but that's just not my experience. And I'm like, that's totally fine. Yeah. Once upon a time, I might have been like, what do you mean that's not your experience? <laughs> Well, you're not black. You know what's what's going on. And I've learned. I'm just like, nah. Why should one black person have exactly the same experience as a as a, as another black person? You know, that's that's not that's not the case. Um, at the same time, you you know, there's been white people who have been really kind of sympathetic. But I'm like, do you know what? I don't really want your sympathy. <laughs> what I want you to do, if anything, is not to tell me that I'm not racist. But now show me how you're going to be anti-racist. Yeah. How are you going to be anti-racist behind closed doors? Mm. You know, I've had some conversations with people. I'm just like, you know what? There's so much stuff I see on Twitter, on social media, uh, like politicians or just things where it's like, that's racist. And the amount of times I don't see church leaders or even some of my friends who are are white, white church leaders as well, not call that stuff out.
0: Mm.
1: And I'm like, do you know why? When you don't call this stuff out that makes me think and other people kind of think you don't care mm. or maybe you agree so my thing is now to people is like we should have these conversations I would first of all say do it when you're, when you're ready and I would also say could we please do it in a in a safe space do it in a way where you're going to be in a position where you've got good people around you I did not walk into this conversation without older black men and women who I could, who've, who've walked this path before me, who I could go and say, listen, I'm feeling like this, how should I respond? Or can you help me? Man, we've got to not go into this thing naively because it will just mash you up otherwise. Yeah.
0: I'd love to hear more about your book, why you feel so passionate about it. Um, and what has the response been, both you know, positive you and surprising and then perhaps maybe negative?
1: The reason I wrote the book was really kind of like, I wanted to be really honest about uh, my experience around this issue. I really wanted to get to the point where uh, we can have a conversation about race in a a faith context. I've read a lot of books around race, but I couldn't find one which really articulated the UK experience and my experience with race and church. I grew up in a white majority Baptist church. I then... Uh, became a Christian in a white majority movement of churches I then ended up leading a, a a white majority church and in a in a very diverse area so there was a few things I picked up in the experience I was like oh I, I think I can actually maybe articulate some experiences and I think I actually there's some, some observations where I think we can help church leaders how do you build a diverse church, and if I'm honest, it just I just start getting annoyed because what was I kept on seeing was all these websites. You know, you know the type of websites when you visit a church website, and it's got you got the black guy, you got the Chinese girl, you got like the uh, the, the person with a disability, and it, and you, then you go to the church, and you might see these guys there, but they're not actually talking to one another. So there's this is kind of, oh, we're diverse, but we're not. We're not actually um, interacting. We're, we're diverse, but we're not actually. We don't actually feel like we belong. And I kept on seeing this this in my own church, and I've seen this in other churches. So I just decided to write my experiences. Um, the response has been overwhelming, um, in 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 a positive way. I've you know multiple people have come to me people of color and just said you've articulated my experience perfectly thank you multiple white leaders have said this is the book I've been waiting for because it's really helping me to understand my um, what my congregation are going through it's a pretty honest and brutally brutally honest book there's questions at the end of every chapter so people don't feel like, oh, I've read this chapter now, I don't quite know what to do. No, there's some real helpful questions at the end of each chapter where you can now go to your, your leadership team or go to your friends and start those conversations. Um, has it all been positive? No, it's not all been positive, but then I think that's good. You know, I, I'm more expecting a blanket. Yay, pat about. <laughs> the um, as, as I said earlier on, some, some black people have been like, that's not my experience. And actually, you're caught, you, you've written something now, got people coming up to me saying, let's talk about race, let's talk about race. And I'm like, I don't want to talk about race. And to be fair, let's not assume every black person has to write about race or yeah. talk about race. I think it's really important. You know, I, I look forward to the day where I can write something as a black person and it has got nothing to do with the colour of my skin. <laughs> Plenty of people out there and I think it's really important to acknowledge that. The vast majority of people have just been like, you know what, this is really needed and this is gonna start a conversation and this is what we want. So yeah, it's been it's been it's it's, it's been really good. I, I think I knew deep in my spirit, um, I think it was Tony Morrison who said, write the book that you wanna read. And yeah. I definitely was looking for a book like this from a UK context, there's lots in the US but not from a UK context
0: wow. um, And my final question is what practical things um, can we do to stay informed and make room for diversity in our various contexts and that's regardless of what ethnicity we are um, and I guess develop empathy towards what other people are going through
1: Yeah, I, I think i um, will I'll encourage people to read I think we're in this amazing space at the moment where there's more um, Racially diverse stories and, and writers, which have been made available. Um, I didn't have this level of uh, input, I suppose, when I was a kid. So there's so many different stories out. There's some great writers out there. I definitely encourage people to to explore. Um, I think. Yeah, incredible podcast as well. There's, there's amazing resources out there where you really want to just—I don't know—just level up a little bit on, the, on 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 the issue of race. And I think have those honest conversations. It's better to have those conversations in relationship. Yeah. People know, than just randomly with people you don't. Know. I don't. I never get into Twitter com- debates about this stuff because I'm just like, you know what? You don't know me, and I don't really know you. So on one hand, while I hope to influence you, the likelihood, because we haven't got the relationship, maybe what I'm going to say will not make a difference. I think also have intergenerational conversations. Wow. So don't just take my word for it or don't even take your own experience. Find out what it was like for your parents and grandparents. And also talk to the younger generation about their
0: experiences amazing thank you so much ben i've had such a great time on this conversation i'm really passionate about race i think it's really important particularly within the context of faith that we have really honest and open conversations. so yeah thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and also experience
1: uh, thank you for having me it's been really good um really appreciate your time so yeah thank you so much
0: thanks so much for joining us for this episode don't forget to subscribe and if you know anyone who might benefit from this go ahead and share this with them also don't forget to rate and review it really helps us out see you next time